Hear the word of God from James 1, 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This is the word of the Lord. Waypoint Church, so glad to start a brand new series with you today. Um, I loved our time in the Pentateuch, don't get me wrong. But I'll be honest with you, I'm kind of glad now to preach something out of the Pentateuch. We're now in the New Testament. We're in the book of James, and I'm really, really excited about starting our time here. We're going to be here for the next few weeks in the book of James. I'm so excited about it. James is often looked at as the most practical letter written. It doesn't feel like it was meant to be a theological treatise or a narrative of historical events. It has more of a feel of a pastor giving a series of short messages uh, to his people. James addresses a number of different topics, sometimes quite briefly. This style, along with explicitly mentioning wisdom multiple times and treating topics that typically arise in wisdom literature, makes scholars suggest that this should classify James as the wisdom document. James focuses on getting believers to constantly live out, consistently live out their faith uh, that they proclaim. So, in the book of James, who wrote this book of James? And obviously the answer is James. But which one? The writer of this letter calls himself simply James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of the four men with this name in the New Testament, only two are prominent enough to identify themselves just by saying James. Like, you can't say like, if I could just say like, you know, hi, I'm John. You're like, who? There's like a million Johns. But the only few people who can say I'm John in a way like, oh, I'm John the Baptist. See, there's the names. There's people who know who you are just by saying the name. James, the brother of John and the son of Zebedee, who was one of the 12 original apostles, that's one of the possibilities. And two, James, the Lord's brother, who was leader of the early Jerusalem church. The apostle James died at too early a date to have written this letter, as most scholars believe. So this leaves James, the Lord's younger brother, as the letter's author. Now, James is probably one of the younger brothers of Jesus, born to Joseph and Mary after Jesus' birth. 
He was not a disciple during Jesus' earthly ministry and was perhaps converted when the resurrected Jesus appeared to him, um, appeared to him later on. James' wide lead, wise leadership of the Jerusalem church and the good name he maintained even among the Jews earned him the title James the Just, according to Jewish and Christian traditions. So James was written by the half-brother of Jesus. Try to wrap your head around that for a second. He was the half-brother of Jesus. I mean, we have evidence in the New Testament that James, while Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, thought Jesus was crazy. I mean, wouldn't you? If your brother, whom you grew up with, started making claims like Jesus did, you'd be like, uh, okay, let's, let's talk here for a second here, or you might want to be going to the hospital. Yet right after the death of Jesus, something happens where now all of a sudden James is convinced his half-brother is God in the flesh. Not only that, he worships him. Not only does he worship him, he's a key elder in the establishment of the first Christian church there in Jerusalem, and he's ultimately martyred. Historians say that he was condemned to recant the claim, he was condemned, he was commanded, sorry, to recant the claim that his brother was God in the flesh. And he refused to do so. So his skull was bashed in. Think about that. Your half-brother into not believing, thinking he was crazy, into being the leader of the church to where he was ultimately martyred. James wrote this letter to the 12 tribes, it says, scattered among the nations. Douglas Moo suggests that they may have been the Jewish Christians who were forced to flee Israel because of the persecution that arose after Stephen's death. These Jewish Christians would have experienced the trials that befall most refugees, trials to which James frequently refers. Moreover, if these Jewish Christians came mainly from Jerusalem, it makes perfect sense that the former spiritual leader, James, would send them a letter to encourage them in their trials and exhort them to continue living faithful Christian lives. So Douglas Moo believes that James, who was known through tradition and history as the leader of the Jerusalem church, was now writing this letter to all the the Christians who had to flee because of the persecution. So this letter now makes more and more sense. It was a practical letter written by a pastor who knew his people, who had to now go live as refugees scattered among the nations. He's giving them a letter to exhort them to live practical Christian lives with all wisdom. And this is the letter for us as we dive into at Waypoint Church, as we're living lives that feel a little scattered right now, as we're living lives in this time, in this age, where the church is advancing, but the world as we know it is just different and weird. Here's a very practical letter from James to us. And it starts like this. The first section of James, man, it just comes out swinging. It comes out hard and to the point right away. It hits the reader, not with a bunch of feel-good platitudes right away, but with real hard truths. Matt Chandler sums up the passage like this. Trials will come. Count them all as joy because God is good. I love that statement by Matt Chandler. I feel he sums it up very well. Trials will come, not if they come. They will come. One of the things I love the most about the Bible is something that a lot of Christians actually nowadays don't like about it or shy away from. I love the grim darkness of the Bible. It doesn't say that everything will be sunshine and roses. It doesn't say you will never hurt or suffer again. The Bible is full of suffering and hurt. It says you will have trials, you will have troubles. You will be persecuted, you will suffer. Now, I don't love those statements because I'm a masochist who loves to hurt and suffer. I don't love those statements because I just don't love comfort at all. I love comfort. No, I love those statements because it matches our reality. 
You don't need to look far to see the truth of suffering and hurt in this world. We don't have difficult seeings that we have troubles. They exist and I need a Bible. I need a God that addresses the reality of this world and has a real solution. C.S. Lewis once said that most of us don't really want a father in heaven but a grandfather in heaven. A senile benevolence who only wants to see the young people enjoy themselves and whose plan for the universe is that might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. What we want, says Lewis, is a God who wants nothing more than for us to be happy. But the trouble is, our Father in Heaven wants more than that for us. As the old saying goes, God doesn't just want us to be happy, as we might understand the term. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to be mature and complete, rebuilt into the image of Christ. And that's one reason he may sometimes allow us to face trials of many kinds. So trials will come. But what are trials? The text says trials of many kinds or various trials. Trials may look different for different people at different times. So what does James mean when he says trials? I know in this world there are Christians who are being martyred for their faith. Is that a trial? How about those who are starving or being sold into slavery? Are those trials? And if they are, can I really list me having my car break down as a trial? Or trying to figure out schooling for my son as a trial? Can you see the problem I'm facing as trying to figure out what trials means? This is why I love the fact that James put various trials or trials of many kinds here. Trials can be anything and everything. It can be having an illness or having a loved one have an illness. A trial is a trouble, a difficulty, a problem. It's also a test. In verse 3, it says testing. You face trials of many kinds, which is a testing of your faith. That word testing is not like a pop quiz that your teacher springs on you. It's not like, ooh, gonna catch you. It's not like taking the SATs and seeing if you're good enough. The word has a connotation of smelting. Do you guys know what smelting is, anybody? It's if you take ore and you apply enormous heat to it, the precious metals in it, like gold and silver, survive, but the worthless metals are either oxidized or turned into slag. They fall off as they separate from the precious metal. Not only James, but 1 Peter and Hebrews talk about the suffering as a kind of furnace. It tests your face, it refines it, and makes it pure. As Christians, we need to see trials that we go through with a different lens. Here are two ways I want you to view trials in your life. Number one, trials lead to maturity. And number two, trials lead you to depend on God. I'll say that again. Number one, trials lead to maturity. And two, trials lead you to depend on God. Number one, trials lead to maturity. Verse three says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That perseverance finishes its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let's look back on your lives. Take a look back and see the times that you have grown and learned the most. Have you not matured and grown by falling and failing and stumbling? Has growth and maturity for you physically, intellectually, and as a person came because everything has always gone your way and everything you chose to do was spot on, right on, and perfect all the time? No. I don't need you guys to even answer that question. I know it's no. You learn by failing. You learn by scraping your knees. You learn by thinking you're right only to realize that you were wrong. That's how all of us have matured. Charles Dickens said, suffering has been stronger than all other teaching and has taught me to understand what your heart used to be. I have been bent and broken, but I hope into a better shape. How much more then will it be for our spiritual maturity? 
I know some of us wish this wasn't the case because we want to believe we can get mature without trials. We want to believe we can mature without them, but God uses the great tools of trials and difficulties to mature us into something incredible. He makes beautiful things out of us. I want to give a moment real quick for my brothers and sisters who are struggling with fear and anxiety. I know it's a difficult, difficult battle. May this word give you encouragement. May you remember this, that often the very thing you fear is the thing that might bring, you, bring about the most incredible growth and maturity in your life. May it bring you some peace and comfort to know that the worst case scenario often for you is that even in your hurt and suffering, God is good and working everything out to make something beautiful. Isaiah 61.3 says this, and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They'll be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. That verse in Isaiah is talking about the favorable year of the Lord, the year that Jesus proclaimed was here to the listeners in the temple when he read from Isaiah 61. The reality that Jesus brought forth is that we, when we suffer, we, when we endure, we, when we go through trials, we get beauty for ashes. We get joy for mourning, praise through despair. There's a lyric from a song. I just wanted to share that because I love that song. But do you hear that? For those who are struggling with fear and anxiety, that is our promise, that we get the favorable year of the Lord. So even in despair, we get praise. Even in mourning, there comes joy. And even in ashes, comes beauty. Trials leads to maturity. Two, trials lead me to depend on God. Let me let you in on a little something. This might be a little bit of a secret. It's not a secret at all. It's very true. Our hearts are mischievous and easily deceived. I know, shocking, but it's so true. You see, when things are going really well in my life, when something great happens, I might turn to God and give him a quick shout out. Oh, wow, thank you, God. Awesome. Then I move on. Or I may even last a little bit longer. I might give him two shout outs and a Facebook post. But as I see sustained good times, do you know what my heart tends to do? It starts thinking really well of itself. It starts saying, good job, Lawrence. You're making great decisions. You deserve all this. You're the one who established it and made all all of it happen. You don't need to turn to God any longer. You don't recognize your own need because Lawrence, you are great and things are going so well for you my heart starts believing that lie. Even if I don't outwardly express it, even if I outwardly might say, cool God, thanks all you, but then move on. That's what my heart starts, my heart is so easily deceived. This is where trials come in. In all honesty, how often do you look to God or cry out to God during the good and easy times? But how often do you look to God and cry out to God during the hard and difficult times? If the best place you could ever be is in direct intimacy and dependence with the incredible God of the universe, then the best thing for you to have is suffering because that is the most often when you go running to him. I remember as a little boy, I started getting to the age where I wanted my mom less and less in my life and started connecting to my father more. My dad was the one I was able to talk baseball with and throw the football with. Wasn't quite at the age yet where like, I would talk about girls or anything, but more of that at the age where I didn't want to be a baby anymore and I thought babies hung out with their mommies. So I'm, I want to hang out with my dad. But man, as, as old and mature and tough as I thought I was, the second I got hurt, I went running to my mom. 
My dad was terrible when I got hurt. If I got hurt somewhere, he would just like hurt me worse somewhere else and say, see, it doesn't hurt as much now, does it? Seriously. <laughs> but my mom would swoop me up, comfort me, sing to me, and she would make me feel all better. The hurt made me go running to my mom because I knew she would be the answer. She'd be the one that would comfort me, make meaning and bring peace to my suffering. My people, we have a heart issue. We don't often go running to God when we are doing well. We often only run to him when we're in trouble and suffering. And so can we start looking at suffering then sometimes as a means of grace and mercy? It is sometimes a gift from God that turns us back to him. Now let me give you a quick caveat to this statement that's also in this text. Not all suffering is from God to make you run to him. Not all trials are from God. God will use trials for good, but most trials come from sinful man. James says this in verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil, desired, enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So please don't hear me say that I said heinous suffering that someone went through. God did that to make them run into his arms. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that incredible heinous suffering, that heinous issue that was so terrible that might have happened to you or someone else, I'm not saying that God did that so that you can go run into his arms so it's better that he did that to you. I'm not saying that. So hear me well. I would say heinous acts of evil happen because mankind is evil and has heinous evil hearts. They happen because of the fall. But God is good and powerful and he turns even what was meant for evil into something good. So even what was evil that was done to someone, even that was horrible that might have been done to someone, that God can turn beauty from ashes. Do you hear that, people? So please don't hear me say that God did that horrible thing to you. Sinful man did that horrible thing. But God is good and he can redeem even that and he redeems you. As we move on in the text... As we see here, what we see next is what the Christian needs in order to rejoice in trial is wisdom. Now, James in verses 5 through 8 goes on to speak about wisdom. And let me just stop right here and say, as you read James 1, this whole passage, you may ask yourself a question. You get to verses 5 through 8 and 9 through 11, and this question might go something like this. I don't know why or have the slightest idea how trials, wisdom, wealth, poverty provide a consecutive kind of train of thought that goes cohesively together. I mean, I know he must be talking about trials in general, but I don't kind of understand how this wisdom and wealth and poverty fits into this whole section in the middle. It almost doesn't feel like it makes sense. How did that get sandwiched in there? How do they fit together? So let me try and help you out with this, okay? In verses 5 through 8, James is telling us that what the Christian needs in order to rejoice in trial is wisdom. How does that relate to what he's been talking about? Well, it relates like this, by showing us the need for wisdom in response to trial. This wisdom is a rich biblical concept, but here what I want you to understand about wisdom is this, in, in this particular verse is this. In verse five, when James says that we need wisdom and that if we lack wisdom, we can ask God for it, he means simply this. That wisdom here means looking at life as James told you to look at life in verses two through four. That's the first part of wisdom that James is talking about. You need to look at life in, these category, in the categories from the framework to framework through the grid that he's described in verses two through four. To look at life through the lens of achieving the ability to look at trials as joy. That's the first mark of godly, divine, heavenly wisdom. In other words, he's saying the first part of wisdom that you're needing, that you're lacking, is being able to look at life 
through the idea of maturing being the goal, through the idea of a heavenly lens, to look at life to saying, do you have the wisdom to see that this suffering leads to growth? The second aspect of wisdom that James is speaking about here is making decisions to move forward on the pathway of spiritual maturity that are in according to God's word. So when you're in the middle of a trial, you're looking at the trial, and you're looking at life, and you're told in verses two to four to look at it as you're moving forward in spiritual growth in accordance to what Bible teaches. Those parts of wisdom are what James is talking about in verses five to seven. And then he says, if you lack that wisdom, I promise you that God will give it to you. All you have to do is ask. If you lack wisdom, and you want to be able to look at your problems the way James 1 through 2 and 4 says this, but you're just not looking at them that way, then what you, and you want to make wise spiritual decisions, you want to look at life that way, you're just not able to do so, what you need to do is ask. What James is literally saying here is, if you want to look at it, if you want to be wise, and the wise one is the one who looks at the world according to the word of God, and you're not able to do it. You're sitting here and you're saying, God, I want to be able to look at my trials as, as joy. I want to look at all the hardships and all the problems. I want to make them show me that I want to rely on you. Show me that there's joy in it because it leads to perseverance. And perseverance leads to be more godless and completion in you. But God, I don't have that wisdom. I just don't. I can't look at the world that way. I struggle. Because God, when bad things happen to me, all I can do is complain. When bad things happen to me, all I can think about is, is I, str- I, don't, I wish it didn't. What James is saying is that he's saying, are you asking? Are you praying for it? Ask the Father to give you that kind of wisdom. Not the kind of wisdom that lets you figure out all the secret things of God. Not the kind of wisdom that gets you out of suffering. But the kind of wisdom that says, can you change my worldview? Can you let me see the, way, the world the way you see it? Can you change my heart and give me such hope and such confidence in who you are and such confidence in the relations that you've given me and such confidence in my future good that I can now even look at suffering and say I have joy in it. James knows that this worldview, this way of seeing the world is not easy. It's not natural to us. He knows that it's hard for his people who are reading this letter, who are struggling with being persecuted and living as refugees to see their suffering in this manner. That's why he's saying pray. Ask God to reveal his wisdom in this way to you. My people, I know that it's hard when you're right now secluded or quarantined, when you're right now losing your job, when you're right now sick or you're worried about someone who is sick. I know it's hard to look at all that and say, yes, it's joy because you're shaping something in me. It's joy because there's a purpose in it. It's joy because I'm becoming more like Christ. It's hard to do that. What James is saying, pray for it. Pray. Because what happens, here's the amazing thing about prayer, is as you pray, you are doing the very thing that the trials was meant to do to you, is to make you rely on God. And as you rely on God, as you're listening to him, as you're building relationship, as you're connecting to him, then you start seeing the way he sees the world. And in that wisdom, you can have the confidence that he loves you, and he knows you, and he's given you incredible purpose. Moving on in this text, the Christian's view of wealth and poverty is a window to his wisdom. This comes another strange, weird verses. You're like, where is this coming from? But through 6 and 8, James speaks of two human factors that can kind of shortcut your peace in the middle of trials. And I'll point to them and point to about doubt and double-mindedness. It says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. The person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. 
Doubt and double-mindedness are signs of worldliness. Doubt here is doubt of God's word, doubt of what James has already taught. Double-mindedness is a person who's trying to live in two worlds at the same time. The present world, which will pass away, and the age to come, which God has already established in the hearts of his people. And the person who is double-minded both wants the goals and desires of this world and the goals and desires of the kingdom of God at the same time. Jesus said you cannot serve God and mammon. You can't do it. And so Jesus is saying if you have twin desires operating here, you'll be frustrated in dealing with your trials. When you come up with the losses of this life, you're counting this life as ultimate, you're not going to have peace. If, if you're single-minded and giving yourself over to the age to come to the kingdom of heaven, then you're able to put the trials of this world in its right perspective. What the Christian needs in order to rejoice in trial is wisdom. And that's what James is talking about here is that here's the thing, here's our problem, is that in your lack of wisdom, in your doubt, you're, you're, seeing, you're being double-minded. In your lack of wisdom and in your doubt, you're saying, no, no, I want to hold to the principles and the treasure of this, of this world. I mean, I believe in God. I believe in the kingdom, but I still can't let go of the materialism, of the consumerism, of the American dream, of, of comfort and of security. And he's, what James is saying is, guys, the more you let go of that, the more you let go of the double-mindedness, the more you gain in wisdom and you're able to believe more in the word and the doubt starts going away, then you'll be able to look at trials as pure joy. Can I tell you something? This is so funny. This is, this is just the way it is. But we all know, we can acknowledge universally as people that there are trials and troubles that we're going to face them. And the Bible gives you one way of dealing with them. The Bible says, hey, believe. Believe that this world is not the end. Believe that you have a strong, powerful, meaningful relationship with God, your Father. Believe that you can look at them as purposeful. Or there's the worldly way. Try to avoid them. Try to cover them up with something else. Try to collect as much good and live for as much joy and happiness now so when the bad times come, maybe you can outweigh the bad with the good. And the Bible is saying when you try to give in to both ways, you're just gonna suffer more. But if you let go of one and choose this, be single-minded in this, that means then the troubles and trials that you know will come will lead to purposeful good. And that can be joy. And this is joy that I'm talking about, not happiness, not moments of uh, pleasure, or fleeting moments of enjoyment. This is joy, joy that comes from being confident, joy that comes from being known and loved and having purpose. If you look at verses 9 through 11, it says here, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. What he's talking about here, as you see, he's talking about the trial of both poverty and wealth. He's, in other words, he's talking about looking into the way the world looks at things. Being double-minded. Now everybody's lining up on one side. I'm talking about trials of both. He's saying both are trials. And most of you might be lining up and saying, well, I'd rather take the trial of wealth. You know, I mean, if I had to choose, if, I had, if both are trials, if being poor is a trial, being wealthy is a trial, give me the trial of wealth. But notice that he has a little bit more words to say about the trial of wealth than he does about the trial of poverty. James wants you to see that both are worldly imposters, poverty and wealth for what they are. You see, the poor man can very easily fixate on dissatisfaction with his situation. And he can think that life was going to get better if only he had what he didn't have. And he doesn't realize that he's been made rich in Jesus Christ already, and there's nothing greater that God could give than what he's already been given. So James tells us here that the relatively poor Christian man could easily fixate on dissatisfaction 
with his situation, but wisdom does what? It leads him instead of being dissatisfied to glory in his situation. Really that he may be poor in the sight of this world, but he is rich in Jesus Christ. On the other hand, the rich man can look at his situation and he can become so satisfied with the gifts that he has that he forgets the giver. He can fall so in love with the gifts that he, has, he forgoes the gift of the giver. The rich Christian could easily delight in his riches rather than realizing that God has surrounded him with things that will ultimately pass away. Prosperity is a trial. In fact, Spurgeon said there is no trial like prosperity. And the comparison of Christianity in the prosperous countries with Christianity in countries where Christians are not prosperous bears that out. The quality of our Christianity is severely tested by prosperity. I love the fact that both are considered trials, but James gives two more sentences to the prosperity of wealth and how that often leads you to thinking of false security and the things that are fleeting. It gives you, it almost, it takes away often wisdom from you. But there is a certain blessing in store for the enduring Christian. James makes a categorical pronouncement about the goal of God's work in us. He says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. When James says that, he's saying something to us that believers, that God has said to believers ever since Genesis. God's taught believers since creation to live their lives in light of the foreseeable good. To live their lives knowing that God is going to do them good in the last days, that God has promises, has a covenant, that he's faithful to his promises, that he will reward them with himself. We're not to live life like the world around us who think life is good and then you die. Or fill up your life with toys because then you die So whatever or whatever because there's nothing that comes after it. But instead, we're to live our lives in the light of future reality that is ours. We're to live our life in light of the love that has been given to us. See, here's what we see so far in the book of James. We need to see our trials as paths to maturity. And we need to understand that the trials make us consciously aware that we need God. That's the only thing we actually really need. Then on top of all that, we have to be careful because we're going to have to fight it out with doubt. We need wisdom. From there, James does what he must do in this moment. That's turn our eyes to the nature and character of God. Verse 16 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. You're in the midst of a trial. Don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. Your flesh is going to incite you. You're going to want to believe that God isn't good. You're going to want to wrestle with comparison and with doubt. Don't be deceived. Don't be tricked. Then he moves to this beautiful reminder that everything good and perfect comes down from the Father of lights. One of the greatest anchors for your soul in the trials that come, regardless of the intensity of those trials, is the goodness and grace of a Father who does not change. Verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be the first fruits of creations, of his creatures. Here's how James ends this whole section. In facing our trials, in our fight of doubt, in our fight with comparison, James wants to remind us of this. God chose you. This was God's idea. 
It was his own will that he called you to himself. God, looking out on the horizon of human history, he says, I'm going to make you a part of my family. I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to call you in. I'm going to pay the price of your adoption, and you're going to be my family. And not only are you going to be my family, you're going to inherit everything. You're going to be co-heirs of all my riches, all my glory, and my mission. He chose you. And you may be going through some of the most difficult times in your life right now, but remember that he loves you, he chose you, and he walks with you during this difficult difficult time you know this is um one time Josiah was outside me Gina and Josiah were outside just playing and no big deal just having a fun time and Josiah's uh Josiah loves just running around playing outside and one time Josiah fell fell pretty hard and scraped up his both his knees really bad got blood and you know dirt and stones and glass and stuff inside his knees it looked really bad it looked painful and I don't know about you guys, as a parent, every time my kid hurts, I hurt. It's almost like sympathy pain. I don't know what that's all about, but I just don't like it. I don't like seeing my kid hurt. I don't like seeing my kid cry. Just not a fan of that. And so here he is. He's crying. He's hurt real bad. Me and Gina, we just want to examine it. We want to look at it. We want to clean it. And he's like, uh-uh. He's not having anything. He's just, no, you're not touching me. I'm in pain. This hurts. And so back in the day when he was younger, it was no problem. We just held him, you know, and just put him down, held him, but now he's a lot bigger. He's a big kid now. He's a strong, heavy kid. And so holding him down, just, just, it's not as easy anymore. And he, when he doesn't want you to look at something, he doesn't want you to do something, it's just, it's a battle. It's hard to do that. And so here I am, Gina, like, she wants to take out glass, she wants to take out dirt, she wants to take out, she wants to clean it with alcohol, she wants to put Neosporin on, she wants to wrap it up, she wants to do all this stuff to it. Gina just not having anything to do with it. So Gina's like, okay, Lawrence, your job. So I had to literally wrap my kid up with my legs, like jujitsu style. I put my legs around his legs. I had his arms wrapped up. I had him in like a massive bear hug. And he's just crying. He's screaming, let me go. Why are you dumb? I mean, he's just upset. And I'm just pinning him down. I'm holding him. I'm like, oh. And Gina's having to like quickly clean him. And I'm crying. Gina's crying. Josiah's crying. We're all crying. It's a mess. It's not good. And literally just holding him down. And Gina's just taking this stuff out, cleaning his wounds. And I felt like, like I was torturing the poor kid. He's screaming. I'm, I'm, and honestly, in my mind, I'm thinking, Josiah's going to hate me forever. He doesn't realize that I'm trying to help him out. He doesn't realize I'm trying to clean his wound. He doesn't realize I want to take, make sure there's no infection. Really, I'm just listening to my, what my wife says. But more than anything, I just, I'm really trying, I just want to do this for my son. I want to make sure he's okay. And he doesn't get it. Guys, many of you today, you might be feeling down that you're p- being pinned down by a loving father. But he's cleaning out what is killing you. It's not cruel. It's loving. When my son cried out for me to stop hurting him, it broke my heart, but it had to happen. Many of us are just like my son. We say, God, please stop. It hurts. It's hard right now. I don't want to be cleaned up. It's hurt. Let me go. But do you believe that God knows what's best? Do you trust your loving father? Trials will come. Consider it joy. God is good. He's for you. And I'm not saying your trial is not awful. Guys, I've been your pastor at Waypoint Church for the past six years. I know some of you have seen awful. We've seen hard. But you haven't been betrayed. It isn't a punishment. You can scream and you can cry out. You can shake your fist at heaven. But I would argue that if you are in him, if you're a believer in Christ, there's this removing of something that might hurt you. And it's a gift that will bring nothing but ever increasing joy for you. It's not a bad trade. It might be a painful one, but it's not a bad one. God is working. And he works even when 
it wasn't your fault, even when he's not doing it just to hurt you, but he's working and taking what was difficult and what was hard, and he's going to make good in you. So then when we face it, we can say, I consider it pure joy because I know I'm loved by a loving father, and I know he's going to work it out for me. Waypoint Church, thank God for such a loving father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... God, we thank you that that is what we get to say when we face trials and tribulations. When we face sorrows and suffering, thank you, God, that we can say, yes, God, I see this as pure joy because I know who I am and I know of a God who loves me so much that you're going to use even this to make me more like Jesus. That you're going to use this to bring more glory to yourself. That you're going to use this, even this, even the hard stuff, and you're going to trade it out and you're going to make beauty out of ashes. And God, our future is secure. God, our lives are secure in you. So God, thank you so much for being such a good, good father that you cut out the the disease and the, the bad stuff. God, to heal us and to make us whole. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.